0: As we saw in Job, some trials, some experiences of suffering and difficulty that happen in our life are in no way connected to specific sins we've committed. So it would be wrong to come to a conclusion, well, this specific suffering is a result of this sin, or really wrong to try to look at another person's life and say, well, that must be a result of their sin. Job shows that is not always the case. However, this passage shows us that some of the trials we face are the result of our specific sins. This is simply one of the ways God disciplines his children. We are his children, and because he loves us when we sin against him, he disciplines us with trials, with pain. Uh, It's... Hard-headed people like me, it's, Spurgeon said, I wonder if I've ever learned anything apart from the rot. And it's the way God teaches us and directs us and loves us and shapes us and molds us and disciples us. So therefore, enduring the consequences of our sins is part of the Christian life. Uh, this is going to be part of the normal course of living out the Christian life is enduring some of the trials that come to us as a result of our sin this is part of what we're going to be dealing with and I think that's what we see here in the second half right really, the second half of the book of 2nd Samuel but especially in the second half of 2nd Samuel chapter 12 because what we have here again is David has sinned uh, f- for a-, a period of time covered it up used his power, as king to-, to carry out sin and cover it up and he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and there's grace in this confrontation And when he's confronted, David repents. He repents. And Nathan gives him assurance uh, that his sin is taken away. This great statement, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. But there are still consequences to face. And again, that, that makes up the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. If you look back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 10. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Doesn't mean David's not still a follower of God. Doesn't mean he can't be used by God in amazing ways. It just means the sword will never, now think about that word, never depart from your house. What a severe consequence. You read the rest of the book. And that's what the rest of the book chronicles, at least partially. Look at verses 13 and 14 of 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. By the way, in the original two words, I sinned. I sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord... The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And then we pick up in the middle of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead. He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead dead and David said to his servants is the child dead they said he is dead then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped he then went to his own house and when he asked they set food before him and he ate then his servants said to him what is this thing that you have done You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I think this is instructive from us, for us in how to face these consequences that we will face in life because of sin. The trials that we face, the sufferings we face, how do we endure that? We have a horrific example here, uh, the, the worst possible example here that one could imagine. And we see David essentially facing it and enduring it and persevering. He faces the music. And he endures. Friends, this is hopefully what this will help us to do. First of all, you endure consequences with prayer. You endure consequences with prayer. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Notice her name's not mentioned. The the author is still emphasizing the guilt of David in slaying Uriah. Making very clear this is a, a consequence of David's sin The Lord afflicted the child, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The assumption here is that he's praying. He's bringing his request to God, and the request is obvious for God to spare the life of this child. He's praying for leniency in light of the consequences he's facing. This is biblical and right to appeal to God for leniency and grace as we're facing consequences from sin. You can also pray for others affected by sin. One of the the passages we can look at to consider this is Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a a psalm, a prayer from David, a song in the context of, of his facing these kind of consequences. Psalm chapter 3. Incidentally, in David's psalms, or in the psalms in general, I believe there are 10 psalms that list the historic context, so not a lot. Most of the Psalms, you don't know the context that they're born in. There's about 10 or 12 of them. And almost every one of them is in some context of, of distress. It's true of Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this, this is a direct result of his sin that we're going to read about in the rest of 2 Samuel. But look at how David prays. O oh Lord... How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me. Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Here's how he prays as he's facing the consequences of his sin. Psalm 3 is a direct result of his sin and the sword not departing from his house. Here's part of it. And you read a prayer like this. David is a man of prayer. As we saw in the psalm this morning, Psalm 109, I give myself to prayer. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst, in this case, of the consequences of my sins, we find it here in the crucible of the dying, sick child. He's praying to God. Incidentally, just as a little aside, verse 8, you see that? Salvation is from the Lord. What verse is that, Jen? Woo! Jonah 2.9. Jonah knows some Bible. In fact, Jonah quotes this psalm. Jonah 2 is a prayer. Jonah has gone down, down, down. He's at the roots of the mountain. He's got seaweed wrapped around his head. He's fighting for his life. And what is Jonah 2? It's his prayer. And you know what he says in Jonah 2.9? Salvation is of the Lord. David recognized that, and David learned that in distress. And, and, and Jonah, in his distress, in the consequences of his sins, will pray that. There's a good consolation to remember. When you're in the belly of a fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. He learned it from David. He learned it from David. James 5 13. Are any of you suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. That as we endure consequences of our sins, we pray. Secondly, we endure consequences, the consequences of our sin, with fasting. Often in, in the scripture, You'll find fasting coupled with prayer. And there's, there's lots of reasons and purposes behind fasting. One of the purposes of fasting is in connection with repentance. But essentially, fasting adds intensity to, intensity to prayer. It essentially takes it up a notch. It adds focus to prayer. It's giving up something that the body physically needs for a spiritual purpose. Here's something that I physically need to, to demonstrate to God how much I need him. So fasting is this communication to God by giving up a necessity of how intensely I'm making this request to you. It adds intensity to prayer. Again, oftentimes found in the context of repentance or times of great distress. It would be true here as well. 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. You see an example of this in verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So we see there the people recognizing their own sin and along with their repentance and their recognition of sin comes fasting. A demonstration to God of sacrifice and of seriousness in enduring the consequences of sin. The next way we endure the consequences of sin is through worship. So we endure these consequences through prayer, through fasting, and through worship. Let's work our way through the rest of the passage here. David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them, So he, he is in such a distressed condition, he will not even stand up. Later he's going to recount his weeping. This is the extent to which he's in distress and weeping. He won't even stand up. He won't even allow other people to help him stand up. So I'll be shocked when people go through terrible dark times of distress. Verse 18, on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do some, himself some harm. That essentially, David is in such a state, and he's been so affected by this trial. He won't even stand up, and he's laying in the dirt, not, eat, not eating. And they, my goodness, as bad as this is, how's he going to respond when we tell him the child's died? Well, David sees them whispering together in verse 19. And he wants to know what's, he, he, he knowing seemingly with insight what's taken place, he asks them. And they tell him he is dead, verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. You see what David does here. You see, he he does what he so typically does. He worships God. One of the great lessons you learn from David. One of the great instructive realities of David's life and, and faithful example, he essentially gets back to worshiping after spiritual trauma. This life is full of trauma physically and spiritually and here you see David going through one of the worst imaginable that he brought upon himself and after essentially the resolution comes a horrible resolution what does he do he worships God he worships God he goes to what is one of the primary means God uses for lifting the spirits for bringing joy for bringing perspective for bringing supplication where the saints pray for one another. This is one of the temptations of depression that I've seen over and over again in my life. The neglect, to, to the temptation to neglect that which will greatly aid you endure in enduring or overcoming the depression. So many people when they're in these seasons of darkness don't want to come and worship God or they don't come and worship God. By doing so, they're cutting themselves off from one of the primary means God uses to bring light and to bring hope. But yet it's so prevalent. It's it's when we worship God together that we set our minds on things above, that the worship of God's people resets and recalibrates our priorities. And there is power in the praise of God to endure the pains of life. But essentially when we worship, and this is why biblical worship is so important, that it's not just some fluffy experience when you biblically worship God you're hearing about him you're hearing about the great I am you hear about the attributes of God one who is transcendently more glorious than anything you experience in this life and it's such it, it reminds you of your proper perspective of this fleeting life and of an eternal God You're reminded of the great truths of God's word. Like, Lord willing, it's the gospel on a regular basis. You're reminded about what God did so you can have eternal life. Such good news, always good news. Doesn't mean it'll always be received as good news. Doesn't mean everybody's always going to be immediately happy, no. But it's the hearing of it that God uses to give grace and help. David endured consequences with worship. Worship. One of the things you see in the psalms, to me one of the most helpful and instructive psalms for people in depression and distress are psalms 42 and 43. Psalms 42 and 43 are dark. The psalmist describes his condition, poetically, as drowning. He talks about the waves, of, the waves being over his head. He's picturing, he feels so bad, feels like he's drowning. This is, this is, this is part of life for the faithful people of God. And uh, in that psalm, one of the things you learn in Psalm 42 is the psalmist is geographically separated from the worship of God's people. he's like, I used to go with the throng to worship God. And for some reason, not revealed by the psalm, he's separated from the worship of God's people and he's longing to get back. He's longing to get back with the people of God. To sing the songs of God and to hear the word of God. You find this in David too. This is where David is such an astoundingly helpful model. And this is where the psalms are just so clear and so helpful, particularly to the depressed or the downcast or the discouraged. David is lying in dirt and he is so hurt he won't even stand up or eat. Let me share with you first Psalm 7. And there, there is a litany of psalms that could be shared. One thing is Psalm 57 in the cave. We have Psalm 147 in the cave. Look at Psalm 7. Another one of these with the context. Eshigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, this is one we don't know about Cush. I have a, I have a theory that this is another name for Mephibosheth's um, steward, but I'm not sure. Nobody knows. A guy who would later become a traitor to David. Look what he says here though. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Now look at the Psalm seven seventeen. I will give thanks to the Lord the most. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the Lord, the name of the Lord the most high. I butchered that. Let me try that again. I'm sorry. Psalm 717, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. In the context of distress and difficulty, you know what David does over and over again? He resolves to worship. This is why worshiping God is not a matter of convenience. It's certainly not a matter of feeling why I feel like worshiping God today. No, for David, in distress, I will praise God I will worship God. He's so helpful in this way. It fills his psalms. Many of them born from distress and darkness. I will awake the dawn. I will sing to his name. I will glorify him. Or Psalm 57, the psalm in the cave. Be exalted, O Lord. David relates this horrible experience he's going through and he just comes out with the refrain of Psalm 57. Be exalted, O Lord. Friends, one of the ways you endure consequences, and the consequences and trials of sin, is through worshiping God. And my favorite is Psalm 63. The very first sermon I ever preached at this church was from Psalm 63. Its it's prescript is in the wilderness. Almost everybody thinks that, that is when David is on the run from Absalom. Doesn't make as much sense that it be when he's in the wilderness from Saul, but rather when he returns there in the context of Absalom, and it is a worship psalm. Spurgeon said that David was in a desert, but there was not a desert in his heart. Oh God, you are my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, my flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. And, it, and then in that psalm he talks about the geographic separation from worshiping God with his people. It's an astounding psalm that shows how David consistently in his life here at one of his darkest moments worships. It's one of the ways you persevere through trial and through, through difficulty. The next way you endure these consequences these trials is with faith in grace faith in grace that God gives grace pick it up in verse 21 then his servant said to him what is this thing that you have done you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive but when the child died you arose and ate food Now, so they don't understand this because in that day and time Hebrew tradition was to fast whenever a person died. That that generally when you're going through times of sorrow or loss, there would be fasting that accompanied it. They don't really understand this seeming reversal because in this case, David's now eating and worshiping. What's happening here? David explains it in verse 22. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Now look at what David. Look at what this reveals about David's beliefs about God and grace. That we don't know what God's going to do. Newsflash: <laughs> In the the regular, everyday circumstances, trials of our life, we don't know how God's going to bring it, how God's going to reconcile it. But we can pray. It's one thing we can do. We can fast. We can worship. I don't know how God's going to deal with this, but I can pray and I can bring my request to him. I know that prayer and fasting are effective. I don't know what God will do, but I know that the fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. I know that. And I do know that God shows grace and gives grace through prayer and fasting. And baby, I can't control him. The Lord's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He'll do, it. He'll do as he purposes. He'll do as he pleases. But I know I can pray. I can appeal to a God who hears. He may give grace. He can do that. I don't know what he's going to do, but I do know he's full of grace. I do know he gives grace. He often gives grace in our life. David, <laughs> David's whole career is based on grace. Shepherd guy who his own father forgets about. Don't you have another son, Jesse? Oh yeah, there is that sheep keeper. Let's bring him in. I'm not even going to use his name. Let's bring him in. Oh, he's the one. Okay. God gives grace. The reality is one one author said grace is the Lord's forte. That's well put. This is why you pray and appeal when you're struggling or in trial. Grace is the Lord's forte. He can take broken, horrible, dark, terrible circumstances, some of which brought about by your sin, and he works them for good. Grace is the Lord's forte. He may be gracious to me. That's why I was praying and fasting. I didn't know what he would do, but I do know his nature, and I know he gives grace. I know it's a characteristic. It's an attribute of God to give grace. Verse 23, But now he is dead. I don't know if you've noticed, but that word keeps repeating through this text. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? This is, no. That is is not the normal way in which God works in the world. He doesn't bring the dead back to life. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Uh, I think this is, I believe this is the clearest text in the Bible for hope, in the eternal life of infants. I think that's David's hope. I think that's David's faith. I think that's part of his consolation here. I think that's part of the reason why he acts in a seemingly unusual way to these elders in his house. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. I don't think he means the grave there. That would not be a really consoling thought. Wherever he is, I'm going there. That there is comfort that we will go to them. They're in a place and will be there too in the presence of God. He will not return to me. But David recognized he's going there. Friends, I think there's, this is comforting in that infants that die are not lost. We're not lost. David knows where this baby is. And and seemingly his whole disposition has changed now that the horrible resolution of his sin has come about. Because he he believes he's going to go to that infant. The loss is still there. And it's real. And it's just one of those things in life that you never fully get over. But isn't it good to know in Scripture, and you have an example like David, very clearly state... This infant is not lost. I will go to him. A couple of other encouragements along that line. Psalm 22.9. Psalm 22 is the, the, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Which seems to be the prayer of a sufferer that is appropriated by Jesus on the cross. And in that prayer of the sufferer, Psalm 22.9, look at what it says. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. One of, the, one of the consolations of the sufferer there, whether it be David in his own day or Jesus when he's facing the cross, look at this consolation. You, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. You certainly have the sovereignty of God there but you also have faith. At a, as a baby at the mother's breast, you, God, made me trust. You don't think infants can trust in God? Or think we read in John's Gospel about John the Baptist and his beginning of ministry. When John the Baptist in the womb comes in contact with Jesus the Lord, John responds... John gives a spiritual reaction to the presence of the Christ. This is a, an infant before it's born responding to the presence of God. Well, you endure consequences with faith in grace. Verses 24 and 25. Let's pick it up there. There's more here to help us. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in her and lay with her and she bore him a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and he sent a message by Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord What, what, what do you do as you face these consequences of sin and they're just looming you move forward that's what you do it's one of the things you do you move forward that's what David's doing here You can't just dwell on the sin and its consequences. He moves forward. He moves forward with his his family. Uh, He's scarred, he's racked. but he goes to Bathsheba, they have another baby. And his name is Peace, Shalom. This overarching Old Testament word that refers to state of well-being. That's what that word means. It's more than just peace. It's a, it's a bigger word than that. It's a state of well-being. That's what Solomon's named after, one of the most important words in the Old Testament. Because life and God's people are in distress, but God is going to bring peace, shalom, Solomon. He's well-being. What a great name for a, a baby after what David's been through. And notice these, these next words, which, I mean, my goodness, I mean, we could spend weeks on this, trying to dig into this. So, forgive me, but I'm going to gloss it and leave the in-depth study to you. The Lord loved him. The Lord loved him. God gives special love to this baby. God loves this baby in a special way. This baby uh, comes from a, a marriage that was orchestrated by depraved human planning and the Lord loves this baby in a special way in fact so much so and again in that day and time the way God reveals himself is through the prophets through the prophets God sends a message to David through Nathan the guy who confronted him I've got a message for you I want you to call him He gets a nickname the Hebrews are big on nicknames his nickname is beloved by the Lord this is a special kid there's you see David's moving forward with family and he's moving forward with hope in what God can do. That's why he names this son well-being or Solomon and then God gives him this extra message he's beloved by the Lord. He's beloved by the Lord. Keep that in mind when you read Ephesians 1 and it says in Ephesians 1 that you have been accepted into the beloved. You're loved by God in a special way from him. You move forward with family, you move forward with hope in what God will do. You've got to move forward past the consequences of sin. Paul is one of the great examples of this in the Bible. Paul who, when Paul is recounting his testimony, how he was saved, he says in Acts 22, I persecuted the way to death. That's Acts 22, 4, revealing that he had killed Christians. He was the result of, he he was the, the reason for the death of believers. He put them in prison. He chased them. He was fierce. He was a killer. I persecuted the church. He also says, in one of the letters to Timothy, I believe, I was formerly a blasphemer. What a strange thing for a Jew to say of himself in his formal rejection of Jesus Christ. I was a blasphemer. By the way, a, a capital sin under the law. Paul remembered his past. Uh, Paul reflected on his past. He he reminded his disciples of his past quite often. But he didn't let his past fetter him. This is why he says in Philippians 3 and verse 13, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies before. So you've got to think about, okay, well how does Paul say one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, when all through his letters he's reminding you this is the way my life was. I was a blasphemer, I was a murderer, I imprisoned, I incarcerated. He was... He's the chief of sinners. Well, because what he means is, it doesn't mean that he's forgotten it, it means he doesn't allow it to fetter him or paralyze him. This is why, friends, you've got to move forward. You've got to move forward. And you've got to be encouraged by what God gives you. You can't just, you can't just live and focus on the gravel. You've got to focus on the grace. And God gives us much grace, even after... I want to use uh, stronger language. Even after, I'm trying to restrain myself, even after the terrible mistakes we make, the terrible sins we commit, God gives grace. You've got to move forward. And you know what you've got to do after that? You've got to return to serving the Lord. Look at how the the passage ends. Verse 26, Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. By the way, let me, let me recall something to you. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 1, to get the context, all this garbage time in David's life happens in the context of this battle with the Ammonites. They're, they're getting victory in chapter 10, and look at how chapter 11, 1 begins with its ominous ring. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba but David remained at Jerusalem and he commits horrific sin now pick it up here verse 26 look what's happening there Joab's still fighting against Reba and he took the royal city verse 27 Joab sent messengers to David and said I fought against Reba moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. Here, here with Joab, this is loyalty. Because essentially the way it works in the ancient world, if you take the city it's named after you and you get the cred, which is a big deal to have a city named after you in that day and time. It's not going to become one of David's cities. It would become Joab's city if he took it. But Joab wants to make sure that doesn't happen. Essentially, Joab's like, David, get it together. Get the people here and take this city. He's going to do a similar thing with Absalom later. That Joab proves himself as a loyal man to, to David in many ways. Verse 29. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it, and he took the crown of their king from his head and the weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to force labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at it toil at the the brick kilns and thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites and David and all the people returned to Israel. Essentially, what you have here is you have a return to chapters 8 through 10 2 Samuel, where David's experience, experiencing victory after victory. Uh, essentially, after the consequences of sin, things will never be the same, but you get back to work, and that's what David does here. He gets back to work, thankfully, with a little help from his friend Joab, but he gets back to work. And and you know what he's doing here? He's where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing. When he earlier lost it, he gets back in the fight. He gets back to his spiritual responsibilities. His spiritual responsibilities are leading the people of God in battle. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, he's where he's supposed to be. That's what ultimately originally led to his sin. He's been wounded, and it's a wound that he'll never fully recover from, but he's back in the fight. Isn't this an amazing paragraph? After all that's happened, he's back at it. Praise God. And and it's a picture of him returning to his responsibilities and he's not committing the same mistake he made, the same sin he committed, the same failure of responsibility that he he made in chapter 11 and verse 1. Well, well, tomorrow's Monday. Tomorrow's Monday. What are you going to do with how this week's gone for you. I'm sure there's been sins. I'm sure there are myriad of consequences in our lives. Monday, pick up the Bible and read it. Pray. Set your family a godly example. It's not focus on the gravel of our past. It's always going to be there and it, it will affect us. Focus on the grace of the day. That by God's grace you have the opportunity to move forward. Get Get about and be about your God-given responsibilities. Uh, Again, this is one of the reasons I love Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. He's there in Doubting Castle and it's the darkest time of his life. And he has a friend who helps him. And uh, he realizes, what a fool I've been. I've got key in my pocket called promise that can open every door in Doubting Castle. Why am I sitting here in this dark rotting dungeon? And he gets up because of the word of God in his heart and he leaves. It's a picture of perseverance where he goes from horrible dark doubting to persevering in serving the Lord. Well, this week we'll likely meet up with people who've made a royal wreck of their life the world's full of us and we all know them family trouble is the worst it's one of the so scarring to so many people it doesn't get much worse than what david did and what happened to him there are people in this town haunted by the consequences of their sin they're depressed and they're in a spiritual dungeon do you see what this text shows you? There's hope. There's redemption. There's joy to be had. I want to share with you one little last Bible fact because obviously the hope is in Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer. Let me, let me show you one little... I'll just, I'll just share it with you. If you want the Bible references, I'll give them to you later. One of the things that 2 Samuel doesn't mention that's why you've got to read First and 2 Chronicles. Is David had another son in this context. Along with Solomon. There's another son that comes from Bathsheba. And do you know what Nathan, or do you know what David names him? Nathan. David had a son from Bathsheba named Nathan. Now where did he get that name? The dude who confronted him. Nathan appears in the lintage of Joseph in Luke 3.31. It's not Solomon in the lineage of Joseph. It's Nathan. What amazing grace comes from gross depravity. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for hope in Christ, first and foremost, and most of all. Thank you for David's example, God. His example of prayer and fasting and worship in facing his trials that he brought upon himself because of his sin. Help us, God, to follow his example. To give ourselves to prayer and fasting and worship. God, thank you for his example of moving forward and that, God, you gave him family and you gave him Solomon and ultimately Christ would come through that line. Thank you, Lord, for that. That you you bring joy to the hurting. Even when we bring the hurts upon ourselves, God, you still give us grace. So, Lord, I just pray you'd help us endure. Help us endure. God, tomorrow help us move forward. Help us to carry out the responsibilities you've laid before us. Help us to be godly men and women, faithful with the time that we have left, dealing with the consequences of sin, yes. But determined, Lord, to be faithful with the rest of our brief time here. So God give us grace and strength to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, friends, to call us to hope in Christ. He is the great hope. He is the He is the way that God puts away sin. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's Lord over all. He's returning as judge. And He will give grace. Our sins and our iniquities, He will remember no more. And it's through faith. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. You trust Jesus to bring you to God. He forgives our trespasses. Our sins are not held against us. In this life, we bear the consequences of them, and that's terrible. But he gives us grace to endure. He gives us us the church, brothers and sisters, to help us through. Friends, we call you to faith in Jesus Christ. We call you to hope in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him as Christians. I pray we'll follow David's example and even now worship him. You have an opportunity to use your voice to praise his name. Be like David and resolve to worship in your distresses. And then leave resolve to carry out your God-given responsibilities in the time you have left.